Especially Chattanooga was such a great experience mentally because I kind of let go of all the pressure and I really just went like, I actually viewed it like I was going back racing as an age grouper. Like that was really all it was about for me because I'd had like kind of a, not the best lead up leading into it um, for a giant variety of reasons. And I even had people in Boulder telling me like, you should just call it like, call it a season. Don't even go and race. Like, or they were like, oh, just go. And if you finish the Ironman, even that will be a success. And I was kind of like, I don't know where this is coming from, but I'm just going to go and do my best. And and that's the only goal I need to write on paper, do my best. And if that was a DNF, that I did my best, then I would have been happy with that on the day. And, and, and it turned out to be anything but that, but that was like pretty much my only, my only goal on the day, process goal. Welcome to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. I'm Jess, your host, and this is the place where we bring meaningful conversations to the endurance sports world. BJ and I love talking with the people of this beautiful earth who are living their purpose, who are following their dreams, and consistently showing us that we can always find a way. Today, we're excited to be chatting with professional triathlete, Sam Long. Sam raced his first Ironman at the age of 18 and really hasn't stopped. Although only 23 at the time of his first Ironman win in Chattanooga 2019, Sam was no rookie to the distance as that win was his 15th Ironman start. Sam took a total of four wins over the 2019 season, starting with the Napa Marathon, then Chattanooga 70.3 in May, and Victoria 70.3 in June. He raced his first 70.3 World Championship in Nice, France, finishing 35th, and then capped off the season with his Ironman win by nine minutes over second-place veteran Matt Russell. Most recently, he's been fueling some healthy competition around the KOM on Mount Lemmon between himself and Lionel Sanders. I have heard Sam talk about being his best, especially when things go awry, and an inability that he has to stop until he's the best. Just today, Sam, we received a beautiful message from YTP guest Eni Jones, who describes Sam's joyous attitude as the strength that will keep him moving forward in the darkest times. So I'm sensing a pretty strong mindset here, and I think we just need to dive in at this point. So Sam, welcome to the show. Yeah, awesome. I should let you uh, do all my intros. Couldn't have done it any better. <laughs> I think this is my new career. I think it is. We, we hear that intros. quite often, yeah. Writing intros. Yeah, we got a message from Eni this morning because we're connected with her, and, and we know that you you started working with her a while ago, and she had just so many lovely things to say about you. Yeah. So yeah, I actually call her my longest standing coach because I've been working with her since I was 17. So um, she's been there every step of the way and big supporter and big help all along the way. And she's such a wealth of information and experience and kindness. Like she's just such a lovely woman to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just on all fronts. So let's talk about this strong mindset that it seems like you've got. Where does this come from? Like, did you have growing up? What was that like? Does this come from your parents, family, or is it just something that you've always stood out with? Yeah. So I think it really comes from my family, and and a lot of that credit has to go to my mom. Um, she's a she has a PhD in psychology, so um she definitely kind of raised me from a young age and, and I was doing sports from a very young age and it was all kind of always about being centered and letting things go and keeping things fun. And then in conjunction with that, I'm, I'm a triplet of three boys. And so you'll, you'll probably find ne no one ever on the planet that's as competitive as me. 
so I kind of needed the combination of like so ultra competitive, but also able to like let things go and reshift. And and then I have an older sister too, and she was kind of like a second loving, caring mom. So I've kind of gotten this atmosphere where it's like ultra competitive, but ultra loving and ultra fun at the same time, which I think um, is kind of the three points. You know, it's pretty interesting that you're one of triplets and you're feeling this competitiveness going back to, you know, probably birth, like, like yeah. literally fighting for <laughs> nourishment, right? From your mother, like fighting for the love and the attention. Not that she wasn't willing to give it to all of you, but like there's three at once. That's a lot. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> what are your brothers like? Are they, are they also competitive? Are they athletes as well? Yeah, so I'd say we're all very competitive kind of in our own domains now. And so one of my brothers is actually, he's like a rock musician and he runs a band. And then another is a, uh, a Wall Street banker. So kind of we all oh. in our own separate paths and all excelling at what we're doing at. So that's been really cool. Yeah, high performers across the board. Absolutely. So ath athletics, has that always been in your life? like, Or was that something that came in your teenage years? Yeah, I'd say so. Like, I didn't really think of it as like athletics. For me, it was like always more just fun. And so I played football and soccer and I was a big uh, downhill skier and then mountain biker in the summer. And, and it was more just kind of to stay fun and socialize and, and be outside. And then it was really just my sophomore year of high school where I started kind of thinking of it as like, oh, this is like an athletic pursuit kind of. But before that, I didn't really have, a, have that conception in my mind. Did you want it as like a profession? Did you feel like being a professional athlete was something that you were destined for? Uh, I mean, when I was a little kid, I was like, oh, being a professional athlete, I thought like maybe I'll be an NFL football player or a professional skier. And then and I kind of let go of the dream, like, oh, that's not really for like regular people. And, and then when I kind of got into Ironman and did my first Ironman and I did pretty well, I was like, oh, maybe I can be a professional Ironman athlete. And, and as soon as that idea kind of went off in my head, I was like, okay, let's, let's try and make this a reality. And you, you grew up in Boulder, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you're surrounded. You were growing up, you were surrounded by all these triathletes, but it wasn't, it wasn't your focus, which is kind of cool because there's, it's a playground, right? Boulder's a big playground. We actually got lucky enough to live there for 10 years and skiing, mountain biking, uh, snowshoeing, cross-country skiing. Did you not see, was, was triathlon not in mm, so much in your awareness those early, like 15 years? Yeah, it, it really wasn't, which is funny because I, I went to Rally Sport. I've been a member at Rally Sport Boulder since I was uh, six months old. My, pick, my membership card still, is, I'm actually a baby on the picture still. And so I, like I'd share the hot tub with Craig Alexander when I was 10, but like, I think I just thought, oh, there's a lot of really fit people in Boulder and, and I just want to be a really fit person. And I had no clue that like, oh, this is the three times world champion. And, and then only later when I got into it, I'm like, oh, I've seen that guy in the pool and this is all of his accomplishments, but I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Like you grew up in it. You grew up in the utopia, right? The the 20 square miles surrounded by reality, as they say, yeah. at yeah. least they used to say when, when we, when we live there and yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I grew up on Cape Cod. Like I grew up in a, in a very uh, ridiculously beautiful and, and safe space to grow up in, but rally sport that brings us to like Aaron Carson. Yep. Um, you've worked with Aaron Carson too, haven't you? Yeah. I've worked with her some in the past and she's always, I mean, I don't work with her in a professional sense anymore, but she's still, I mean, always kind of a mentor and around that time. So, so that's always been a very positive influence. Another person that just has a really good mindset, but you mentioned something about letting go, like growing up, you were like, it was about letting go. And I think letting go is 
is a place where athletes can get really stuck. And especially as age groupers, we're experiencing the letting go of races being canceled. As a professional, as this being your career, have you had to deepen that ability to let go with races being canceled? Definitely. I mean, and at, at first it was hard and, and I've kind of just reframed it to, to think of it, about it in a positive way. And, and I don't think there's anything else we can do in this situation. How do you reframe it? Like, how did you reframe it into a positive way? What did that look like? Yeah. So right now I'm kind of thinking about it in like a two pronged way. And one is that there's going to be assuming that we get over this and we can race in the, in the late summer and fall, there's going to be like three races every single weekend. So it's kind of like, Oh, go and race wherever you want, whenever you want. And it's going to be just this total awesome mayhem of races if that happens. And if it doesn't happen, then I guess I'll have to find a way to deal with that. And then then the other way is more of a process approach for me. And that's focusing on like my long-term development as an athlete. So I'm like, oh, okay, I can take a step back and really kind of not have to be worried about, oh, how do I be fast in Oceanside would have been this weekend. So how, how do I be fast in six days? And how do I be fast in a month at St. George? And more like, what can I do now to be better 10 years from now? So that's really probably the ultimate way that I'm thinking about it. How does it change the one of the things that we get questions about having conversations with professional triathletes is like age groupers don't understand. They're like, I don't understand how it works, like how the business end of it works, how the sponsorship works. So with races being canceled, how does that change the business end of it? Because as a professional triathlete, it's not just get up and train all day. Like you've got the business end of it as well as, as this is your, your income. How does that change? How have the sponsors been working with you during all this cancellation and, and just unexpected changes? Yeah. So I, I think that's a really good question. And I think we're still seeing some of how it's going to evolve. And the question that I'm asking myself is how can I continue to add value to my sponsors in this time without racing? That's why you're going to see there's probably going to be a lot of like Zoom meetups or online meetups so that athletes, age group athletes can still connect with professional athletes and and maybe there'll be some type of Ironmans watching a virtual racer. Or for me, I've been really trying to go after these Strava KOMs to kind of stay relevant and keep some sort of form of competition since I'm the ultimate competitor in my life. And it, it, it's cool too, because if you had asked me this question a year ago, I had some sponsors, but they weren't really anything near enough to like live off of. And now, thankfully, I'm in my first year where I'm kind of able to at least buy food and and have a livelihood without the race winning. So thankfully, I'm in a comfortable enough place to still be able to focus on training and becoming better. So that's been really helpful this year. When did that really shift? When did that shift for you? Was that after Chattanooga, like the the full Ironman win? It was that, yeah, it was after the full. So yeah, which I thought was interesting because I won 270.3s earlier that year. And it was like, the phone was not ringing at all. I was like, oh God, I better like do something more and something bigger. And then particularly winning Ironman Chattanooga. And then I flew out to Kona to be around uh, the race. And that's when like I met with people face to face. And that's really when everything kind of started to take off. Was that your first time visiting Kona? No. So I've actually raced at Kona as an age grouper in 2015. Did you qualify for Kona at that first Iron I did. Man you did? I, I did. Yep. <laughs> Going back to how you said, well, I maybe I could do this professionally. Let, let's go back to that. That first Ironman, which one was it? It was Ironman Boulder in 2014. So your backyard. 
So you yep. can train on 75th and swim in uh, the res. Yeah, and... swim in the res and, and run the path and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, when you went into the race, did you have expectations? Did you, or were you just kind of going in to see how it was? Yeah. And again, this probably shows that I, I grew up in Boulder around a lot of really fit people. My goal was to quote unquote finish the race. But I was like, oh, you know, under nine hours and 30 minutes should be no big deal. Like that's just a pretty regular time for someone to finish their first Ironman. That's honest to God. That's what I thought. Like 930, like that would be an okay time, you know, nothing amazing. And I went 927. And but yeah, my goal was really just to finish. Did you win your age group that day? I did. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So you got so <laughs> 18 to what? 20, 22. 24, age group? 24, yeah, yeah. 18 to 24. Yeah. And I was 18. Yeah. <laughs> so you went to Kona in 2015 and you're, what was that experience like? You're seeing these pros. Is the desire getting stronger? Yeah, the desire. Well, I would say the desire was already like 100% there. And Kona was actually the first real experience, I would say, where it was like, oh, this is going to take a massive quantity of discipline focus work for years. And that's that was my slowest ever race. I went uh, 955 there. And I got a dra- I got a drafting. I don't like to talk about it, but I got a drafting penalty. And of course, like everyone, I say it was total accident. But in this instance, it probably was just to, like I wasn't even meaning to draft because I swam like 108. And I was like, I've never been around so many people in my life. And I just like didn't know what to do. And I got a drafting penalty and then got totally pissed off in my head and like thrashed the bike and then like was like, oh, God, I still have to run 26 miles and like laid down on the ground. And then I was like, OK, get up and finish this thing. And that's when I was like, OK, like what those pros do going I mean, now under eight hours at Kona, it's there's a huge difference between being able to do a 930 Ironman and being able to go 740 at 753 at Kona. So it sounds like that first Kona was a little dramatic. Yeah. Like you you kind of lay down on the ground and, you know, obviously as a, as a professional, like that's precious time there. But to get back to the mindset, I love this. I love that you brought that up to get back to the mindset. Like, what did you, what did you learn about indulging those dramatics? Like, are they helpful to your, to your performance? Ultimately? No, I don't think so. I mean, maybe, maybe making the positive ones more positive and maybe minimizing the negative ones would help. But like, I don't know that it's super positive or I won't use the word positive, but super beneficial to look at Kona as like you're going, landing on D-Day, you know, storming the beach to save the world from World War II or something. I, I don't quite think it's maybe that level of dramatic. I think it's maybe more helpful for me to be like, oh, I got to go race in Hawaii and I got to be around all these amazing people. And, and I certainly got to test my limits. But I don't really try to think about it quite as like a life or death pursuit anymore. The penalty is an interesting piece because it's such a opportunity for your mind to, to either shift quickly into, you know, how, what can I do about this versus why did this happen to me? And it sounds like your ability to just shift was like, I got to hammer this bike. I I need to like get into like hammer mode. So here's my question. How do you, how did you reframe the the run after that? Because as age groupers go out and they hammer the bike, even though they don't have penalties anyway, and they get to that run, they're just dealing with it. So how do you separate the two being like zooming into that present moment? What can I do about this penalty? I need to bike hard and worry about the run later on. How do you like drop right into that present moment? I I don't think I dealt with my mind in the right way 
in that occasion. Like I thought about it, oh, a five minute penalty, like that's the end of my race. In order to make this up, I have to bike as hard as I can while instead, like if I could reframe that now, I would say like, oh, it's it's a five minute penalty. Like just carry on to your race as normal. It's five minutes where you get to sit in a well, stand up in a penalty tent in the shade. Like it's really probably only two minutes lost in a race out of a almost 10 hour race on that day. Like just carry on to your plan as normal and stay focused and stay positive. That's how I ideally would have reframed it. But instead I was like, I, I, I forgot about the run. It was like the run was happening next year or in another lifetime. And, and I was only focused on getting the five minutes of the penalty back. And then, then when I got out on a leaky drive, it was like, okay, run. And there were probably like 50 times I had to reframe that run because it was like, Oh, mile one, like, Oh, my feet are burning. I'm dying. Like, jump in a pot in, in one of their coolers of water. Oh, now my feet are, have blisters and my shoes weigh 10 pounds. And oh, now I'm really dying. Let's lie down on a, at an aid station. Um, now I've lost five more minutes, which is more than the drafting penalty. Like, And then finally I got out on the clean K and it was like, okay, just one step in front of the other. And then with 10K to go, um, and this is also quite interesting. I was like, because there's so many better competitors at Kona than any other races. I was like, I'm based, I thought I was in, dead last place. I'm like, I'm in dead last place. Nobody's behind me in this race. And, and then lo and behold, I pushed the final 10 K just like to, for my own sanity to get it done. And then lo and behold, I finished and I was like 40 seconds behind fifth place. So I almost got a Kona bowl my first time there. And I'm like, Oh, well clearly I didn't get last place. Like, like there's always now and, and it was such a useful experience in so many ways because now i always keep that in mind like an ironman can seem like it's over i mean god an ironman can seem like it's over halfway through the swim and then you just have to keep finding ways to keep going and sometimes you end up crossing the finish line and first even doing that so so i think that's maybe the method i love that you said that like it's a value it was a valuable experience I, yeah. I look at those experiences as okay well that just strengthened my desire to you know, be more flexible to, to let go quicker. It also shows me what I don't want. Like that gave you a great example early on in your career of what you don't want, right? You don't want to be that dramatic about it. So where does it go from this? When do you decide that you're going to, I mean, when you go to Kona, the desire is really strong at this point, you said, when does it turn into, when do you go for that pro card? What is that decision looking like? Yeah. So, and especially after Kona, I was like, whoa, I'm not sure I'm, I'm ready to be a pro. Like I've done 955. Like that's, and I was like, I should probably be like at least on the podium at Kona. Um, but that was kind of the end of that year. And then went into the off season and kind of kept training. And then I did 270.3s early on that year. And I was second overall amateur in both of those. So I, I want, and I, I, in both of those, I won my age group like in a 70.3, it was by like 20 or 30 minutes or something. And so then like the competitive side in my head goes like, I don't think it's fun really to win an age group by 20 or 30 minutes. I'm like, what's the next challenge? Let's find that next challenge. And, and it was also actually just kind of like a big economic decision. It was like, okay, I can pay $900 for the yearly Ironman license and race as many times as I want and get more valuable experience. And so it was kind of more a choice to save money and gain experience. And I didn't really expect to do that well when I first went professional. And in my first year, which was 2016 as a professional, it actually went okay. I ended up getting like second place in a 70.3 and second place in an Xterra. So I was like, oh, actually, maybe I'm pretty good at this. But then the year after that, I, I don't think I got like in the top five 
And I was usually like 10th or 12th every single year. So it was like, oh, some immediate success. And then it was kind of like, okay, here's the sledgehammer knocking you off and <laughs> making you realize like it's, it's going to be a progression. So this is your 2020 is going to be your fourth full professional season. Yeah. Yep. 2016, I got it halfway through. So it'd be my fourth full season. Now you're coaching, you're coaching now with Ryan Bolton before Ryan, right? Is that correct? Yep. That's correct. Okay. And before Ryan, were you totally self-coached? Oh, you're like laughing. laughing. (laughs) (laughs) That's like a question that we could be having a podcast for like three hours, just on my coaching uh, decisions and moves and breakups. It's like the love and life and times of Sam Long's coaches for points. I was self-coached. I've, yeah, I've already had Ryan's now my, my coach and that should be a long-term thing, but other triathlon coaches. I was coached by Siri Lindley for a bit. I was coached by Richie Cunningham for a bit. I was coached by Eric Kenny for a bit. So I'm, I've already had four triathlon coaches and some of those relationships were great. And I learned a lot of, out of them. And some of them actually were not very good, which kind of pushed me more to the edge of self-coaching. And then now I'm kind of at the point where I do think having a coach is an excellent thing to do. Yeah, I mean, and all those coaches are excellent coaches, but you got to find like yoga, right? We're yoga teachers um, as well as athletes. And not every student is my student. Some yes. some students come to my class and they hate it. Totally. And some t- students come to my class and they're like, whoa, that class, I think, just changed my life. So it's, it's always a valuable experience. Absolutely, but it's like yeah. you got to be willing to be okay with making changes, having the hard conversations, moving on when you feel that you need to move on. And then eventually you land in with that right fit, which it sounds like you have now. Totally. Yeah. And, and like, I'll be the first to say like, cause a lot of these relationships I was navigating at 18, 19, 20 years old. And, and I thought I probably knew more than I think I, I, I certainly thought I knew more than I knew at the time. And, and my communication could have been better. So sometimes I was going, Oh, they're the worst coach on the planet. And and they're not. And sometimes it was just in my head. And then it was, but the lessons learned were, were invaluable. That, that's a, a really good education, like a yep. firsthand education on not only um, relationships with, uh, we'll call them guides out there, but also with what information, Sam, that you can pull from each one of these people that you can really take to heart and apply to exactly. yourself. And I, I, I can totally see the fluctuation. Um, it's something that I'm uh, familiar with too, and in, in dipping in, in and out because you find this program and you're thriving on it. And then you, you kind of want to mix a little bit of, of what somebody else yeah. gave you. And because we're all unique, this is, this is the really big key here is like, we're all unique and we want to find that right guide for us for a long period of time, which sounds like you have, but along that journey, you're pulling pieces from certain guides that attune to where you want to go and what feels right to you. Yep. Right. So you don't want to resist some things. And that's what I found with some strategies and plans is like for 50, 60, 70% of it, it's like, great. And then there's some of it that doesn't align with you yet. Like there's just yep. something that is not, is not pulling in, but the experience that you had is, is purposeful. Totally. So you gain yeah. confidence in yourself by pulling away from some of these coaches to be able to, to fail on your own. Like go do a, go do a, 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 th- a thousand mile week on the bike and see what it's <laughs> like, right? Totally, yeah. Firsthand. Yeah. Like you can take, you can take that opinion from someone else, but go experience it, go experience it. How, what is your relationship with failure like that or learning? I should say. So it's, it's funny you say that. Cause, and I want to just add a little bit about my relationship with Ryan now. Cause the other day 
I did a talk uh, with the Wadi Inc. crews with me and Ryan, and they were kind of asking like, oh, so like, how do you think about Ryan? And of course, in the moment, I said like, not quite what I meant to say, but I said like, oh, I think of him like he's my grandpa coach. And everybody thought I meant that because he's like 44, which obviously is not <laughs> the age to be a grandpa. But I meant it like he's he's got like that mindset that's like he still sort of coaches me a little bit that way. Like, oh, Sam, you want to go and ride a thousand miles this week? Like, go for it, you know, and he lets me do it. And then I come back to him and I'm kind of like, whoa, what was I thinking? Like I learned so, so I learned so much from that. And so it's kind of like, it's not always just like, do this, do this, do this. Like sometimes he lets me fail on my own and lets me get that process of failing. And then we have a conversation about that. And, and that's something that I've really gotten a lot of value out of that from, from our particular coaching relationship. I love that. Um, sorry, I, I got a little sidetracked. I, I, your question was related to that, but I can't quite remember what it was. <laughs> I, th- I think that's the special sauce. That, that's, that's, your, that's like what your stew you're putting together. Like you're putting all these ingredients in and you found the coach that listens to you, lets you fail, but, but you guys have a conversation about it and then you move forward. And it's not hanging in the, well, I told you. It's just experience it, move on. What can we learn from this? And let's come back stronger because although you may have been tired and fatigued or whatever after that, it still served a purpose. Like you still gained fitness, you'll still gain perspective and you gained confidence. Exactly. Yep. And I think like if it's really, truly a stupid, stupid idea, like he'll, he'll say, no, we're not doing that, you know, but if he's like, Oh, it's kind of a stupid idea, but he's going to learn from it. Like, and that, that takes a lot of special sauce as a coach, especially with me to know, okay, when do I sort of let Sam go and do this? And when do I not? And he does it amazingly. So I'm a coach just as, just as a coach as well. And how do you feel about the trust in the process with your, with your coach? And we, I know we talked about the collaboration, but what is that level of trust that needs to happen um, with your guide in order for you, for the fullest potential of you to come out? in the moment and, and to foresee the future five, 10, 10 years down the road without getting caught up in all of that. So what's the trust? How important is trust? Well, I'd say, I'd say it's the most important in, in trusting in the process. And even today on my run, like, cause I'm in Tucson right now. And anyways, like it's actually sort of a meditation running out here every day. Cause I basically run on one path every single day. So it's like 10 hours a week on the same exact path. So sometimes I run out and it's like, okay, like let's find a way to, go inside my own body so that I'm not like looking at the same path for 50 minutes every day. And I, I, today I started daydreaming a little bit about like, oh, how would I structure my own run week if it was up to me? And then an hour and 20 minutes goes by. And as I'm coming back in, I'm like, well, that was great that I thought about all that. But like, I trust my coach 100% and I'm not going to say anything. Oh, we should structure it this way. It's like, he knows a million times more about running than me. So I'm like, great. I thought about all that, but none of it really even matters because I trust that process. And even more importantly, I think, is that the trust keeps getting built. So I trust him more than I trusted him last year. And I'll trust him next week more than I trust him right now. And I think that's really what it's about is we build the trust through every single training session and every single race and and over time. And that's going to be what it's really about. What you, so you just mentioned something that I think is a really important piece that perhaps maybe people don't understand how important it is for the mind. You know, we we teach a lot about mindset. I teach meditation to athletes. You know, and, and getting that that mind that monkey mind harnessed in and focusing and all of that. But it's also a really potent practice to do exactly what you just did is to just let the mind go crazy. Um, yeah, like totally. just let it go because 
that's what it's built to do. It's designed to do all those things that you did. Like, whoa, well, what would that look like? So you're analyzing it and you're kind of using your imagination. Like, what would that look like? And and you're you're letting it be exercised. Yep, totally. But being able to also know your mind and how it works and what those tendencies are, that's really where you'll be able to move through those tough moments in racing because you'll be able to say, oh, well, that's I know that that's a story from the past that doesn't serve me anymore, and I'm going to focus right now in this moment. But by letting the mind run, we get to know how it works. And when we know how it works, then we know how to use it. Yeah, yeah that's a great point. Yeah. So I encourage everyone, like, you know, even five minutes a day, just let the mind, just let it do its thing. Just watch how amazing it is. I feel like sometimes it gets such a bad rap because we're always talking about training it and taming it, but it's a pretty cool thing. It's just, it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to rule us. Like it's actually meant for us to use and we can use it. Yeah. We can use it in really skillful ways, especially in our professions when we know how it works. So I love that Ryan lets you do these things. And it just seems like that that's part of your nature, right? And you're also, you know, you're still young. Are you 23 or 24 now? I'm 24 now. Yeah, you should be going out and just having fun and doing these crazy things, right? And he's going to guide you and steer you in a way where it's, you know, it's not going to affect your profession in, in a poor way. But what are some of the other things that, you, that you've really clicked with with him and how he trains you? Yeah. So I think um, like, especially if we look at like physiological versus psychological things, and we can, we can surely talk about both, but um, physiologically, like on the running side, it's been just 100% about consistency. And so now I'm in my second year with him. And, and really the first year I think was more just like teaching my body to handle the load, to handle the frequency. And because every Monday I run six miles in the triathlon world, a lot of times Mondays are like maybe just a light swim and some stretching and for some people just totally off. But now it was like, for me last year, it was five miles this year. It's six miles. And even all last year, I'd be like, Oh, this is kind of a lot. But now it's like every Monday I run six miles and it's no problem, you know? And and that's just one example because, and I've noticed like my, my running stride just feels so much more efficient. And and like, that's one example of one day of the week, but every day of the week looks like that. It's never like, Oh, we, we don't really do any crazy, amazing run workouts. Like, my most frequent run is that I probably do three times more than any other workout is anywhere between like 30 minutes to an hour 20 of running with six to eight strides. And I do that like two to three times a week for 52 weeks of the year. And I'll probably do that for another three years. And it's like, there's, there's literally no secret sauce to that, except that you have to wake up and you have to do that three times a week for three years and it, and it improves it, you know? And so that's kind of been the biggest thing. And especially like being a bigger guy too, since I'm a little bit heavier and stuff, like it is really important to develop that, that run consistency. And I have to do it over time more so maybe than somebody who's, I, I don't want to use the word a more natural runner. Cause I, I believe that I will be, and that I can be one of the best runners in the triathlon world, but it just takes longer for me to develop and build that stride and going out and running 10 times 1k as fast as I can every week is ultimately not the way to do that. And he's got, he's had you training with some professional marathoners in the past. Are you still doing that? I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Caroline Rotich. Yeah. So unfortunately, so she was out here in uh, Tucson and I was doing some training with her and then Boston got canceled. So then she was like, Oh, I don't have anything to train for. So then she's sort of 
curtailed stuff. But I mean, that's been an amazing experience. And it's like that saying, you become the average of your two best friends. But I think that's true for your training partners, whether it's running or swimming or cycling. And it's like, when I'm running with Caroline Rotich, you know, four days a week, it's like, oh my God, like you can't help but be a better runner. Like, <laughs> and, and you're having meals with her too. And it's just like, you just, it's like to go back to the mindset, like you sort of see, like, it's not just, oh, she wakes up and she runs and she's a good runner entirely because of what she does in the 45 minutes to 90 minute run she does. She's a great runner because of how she wakes up from the minute of the day until she goes to bed. And then she's even a great runner when she sleeps. It's how she sleeps too that makes her a great runner. It's literally everything. What are some things that you've pulled from her, maybe some techniques or tips or secrets that you've pulled from her and, and put into your own mix? Yeah. To, well, so first off, the Kenyans, um, they're amazing with just being lighthearted and having fun with things. So it's like they're, you go on an easy run and, and I don't want to talk it bad, but you go on an easy run with Americans and everyone's looking at their watch. Are we running sevens? Are we running seven tens? Are we running? It's like, 10 seconds a mile matters to them on matters to me or matters to all of us on our easy day. And it's like, you could run with her on her easy day. She will not look at her watch once the pace could be 10 minutes a mile. It could be 15 minutes a mile. She wouldn't even care. It's not ever 15 minutes a mile, but it's like, it's just having fun. And it's as if like, it's as if she's getting a meal, you know, socializing, having fun. It's just a total enjoyment factor. And then you go on the hard days and it's like, okay, let's, Let's warm up. And again, she doesn't even worry about what the pace is on the warm up on a hard day. And then it's like, let's run five minute miles for 10 miles. And like her pacing and the execution is perfect. Like if you tell her to run five minute miles for 10 miles, it's going to be five minute pace. It's not even going to be 501 or 459. It's going to be exactly five minute pace. Like that's how dialed in she is. But she chooses to turn that off on the days where it doesn't matter. And I've heard rest rest is the big thing for them too. So yeah, they do go hard, but they, they really know how to rest. Have you, do you, what does your rest look like? What is, what yeah, is your well, sleep and naps? And <laughs> first off, I'll say it's, it's mind, but they know how to rest. Like you cannot believe, I mean, she would take, she always would say, the more I sleep, the more I can sleep. And I'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. And so she'd go like, my best thing to do is to take a four hour nap from two till 6 PM. I get up, I do my second run of the day. I have dinner. I go to bed at like 8.30 and sleep 12 hours. I'm like, are you a baby? <laughs> but like they do that and they can, they can do that every day. And it's totally amazing. And I don't sleep quite that much, but I would say I'm, I'm big on the sleep and the rest. And that's actually been hard for me to learn as a professional because like my, my underlying passion that got me into this is being outside and really being high energy and doing all the things I enjoy. And so it's like, if my coach tells me, and I list, choose to listen and I ride four hours and then I'm like, oh, I still have eight hours of daylight. And I'm kind of like, oh, I want to go out on a walk or a hike or, or sunbathe or just whatever it might be. But I'm like, okay, let's kind of tone it down. Let's take a nap and let's find ways to make that maybe a little bit lower energy. Yeah. I, and I love this idea of the lightheartedness that you've picked up from her, that this lightheartedness I'm sure has so much to do with her ability to sleep because if we are carrying so much, like sometimes the mind goes crazy and we can't sleep or we wake up in the middle of the night, but it sounds like this lightheartedness is allowing her to, you know, just kind of rest when she needs to rest and not really be carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders. Like we all tend to do so well in this country. So I've heard you talk about like going out and just having fun with your racing. And I heard you on a podcast talk about that before you went into Ironman Chattanooga, that you just 
Like you just wanted to have fun. And it was almost like, does that allow the pressure just to take a back seat or is the pressure still there, but the fun is the intention? Yeah, I think if I, the, the pressure, I guess, is always still there, whether it's, whether it's internal or, I mean, the pressure will only just keep increasing with me over time as I get more sponsors. And, but I, I, I don't think you have to let pressure be like the defining point of a race. You certainly can choose to if you want to. And, and some people do great. They kind of back themselves up against the wall and make it this high pr- pressure cooker and they either perform really, really great or they DNF the race. For me, it was, yeah, especially Chattanooga was such a great experience mentally because I kind of let go of all the pressure and I really just went like, I actually viewed it like I was going back racing as an age grouper. Like that was really all it was about for me because I'd had like kind of a, not the best lead up leading into it um, for a giant variety of reasons. And I even had people in Boulder telling me like, you should just call it like, call it a season. Don't even go and race. Like, or they were like, Oh, just go. And if you finish the Ironman, even that will be a success. And I was kind of like, I don't know where this is coming from, but I'm just going to go and do my best. And, and that's the only goal I need to write on paper, do my best. And if that was a DNF, but I did my best, then I would have been happy with that on the day. And, and, and it turned out to be anything but that, but that was like pretty much my only, my only goal on the day process goal. Was the presence of Matt Russell at all in, in, intimidating on, on the run at all uh, on the run, because he's such a strong He's got such a strong energy and comeback story and desire for that underdog to always like come through like in the end. And he's a solid runner. Did that pressure, did you feel that pressure late in the, in the stages of the run? Uh, not late, but I would say I felt it early. If you ask me, so I'd have to tell you how I paced that race pretty much because of Matt Russell, um, because I came off the bike with, I had like a seven or eight minute lead, which, which I was not like, oh, that's, I was like, oh, that's a comfortable lead, but that by no means did I think like, oh, I'm going to win this race. And so my strategy was like, basically, how do I diminish his his presence of that? And I was like, do a massive positive split so that you get halfway and he's going to be 15 minutes behind. And and that's exactly what I did. I ran the first half in like 127 or something in, in 95 degree heat. And then there was this point where I saw him and it was at mile like 12. And he knew he was 15 minutes behind me then. And he said, hey, Sam, you're doing great. You're going to win this. So that right there kind of diminished his presence. And then I certainly suffered a whole lot on that second lap because of how I paid. Like I could have, <laughs> I could have run faster, but ultimately like winning an Ironman and especially in the pro, it's more about like, how do you, how do you break your other competitor? And I'm not saying I necessarily broke him, but how do you break your other competitor's spirit and get that top mental edge? And in that race, like I chose to do that to get that mental edge over getting the fastest possible time. and. It's hard to say because maybe if I had done a positive split, then maybe he would have been eight minutes behind and people do superhuman things. And then maybe he would have run 245 and beat me. It's it's impossible to say what could have happened, you know. Um, so, that yeah, that was the strategy there. What, what a beautiful, like, what an awesome thing that he said to you. Like, you're doing oh, great. Yeah. You're going to win this. So when he said that to you, you're like, huh? Like, what was, <laughs> what was that moment of receiving that? Well, yeah, I was kind of like, huh, like, what? He's... He, he's telling me I'm going to win this. Like, isn't he trying, isn't he trying to beat me? But um, yeah, it was pretty awesome. And, and me and Matt go, we've raced in a lot of ways. He's like the guy I've probably raced like more than almost anyone else. And like Lake Placid, we kind of biked together and I ended up dropping out of the race, but me and him biked the, basically the whole way. And so obviously he still won that race on his own, but us biking there kind of set him up and, 
So we're definitely like very furious competitors with each other, but I'd say we also are like always, I'm always rooting for him for sure. You know, like, and I, I imagine he's also rooting for me. Of course he wants to beat me, but if I'm not in the race. He's probably rooting for me. Yeah, if he's not in the it. race. It's like, a, it's like, it's healthy competition. Yeah, exactly. So let's, let's talk about a little healthy competition. So Lionel set the KOM <laughs> and you got inspired. So tell us about that. Yeah. Oh, this is just like crazy. Um, <laughs> it's so yeah. fun. It's fun. Though. It's like, fun. It's we, fun. we need yeah. to be having fun right yeah. now. We and I will, people love it. Yeah. I, unfortunately, I will say there's like 10% of people that are thinking I'm going about this in some type of like a evil way or something. And that's been like, because I, I, to me, it's just pure positive fun energy. And to be honest, I could care less about having the KOM when all this is done, it's mostly about having fun and pushing limits in a time when there's really no limits to be pushed on a race course. And so, yeah, like I've, I've always, well, I've always been into getting KOMs for one and Mount Lemon is like certainly one of the most, it might even be like one of the most prestigious ones in the world. And then when Lionel, he's kind of done a whole number of them, but like a month ago, he, he did like 116 on it, which was like, I saw that at the time and I was like, that is superhuman. That's going to, I'm like, there's no possible way I can ever do that. But I'm like, I just have to go and give it a go and see what I can do. And I'm like, I thought I, I was going to be stoked if I was under 120. And of course, I just have fun. Again, maybe the competitive side of me, I'm, like I'm talking banter on social media, but really I'm expecting like that I'm going to just get my ass totally kicked, <laughs> that I'm not even going to be close. But I'm like, whatever, it's the times of Corona. Let's just have fun with it. And at the very least, everyone can laugh at me. For all that matters and i go and i do it and i'm like 20 seconds behind which was which i thought was totally amazing and it, yeah so then that's kind of been i guess the evolving story but it but it was after a few days you, you smashed a, a 250 mile ride that's true yeah 251 miles yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so. yeah. W was that a part of the strategy to like stress <laughs> and then rest and then go for the kom or was that just ryan saying okay sam go ahead and do that we'll just see how it works out yeah it was more ryan said like oh ride 10 out ride 10 hours on that saturday and and then I was feeling great. So I rode 11 hours and 15 minutes because I got to 10 and I was like, great, I can ride farther than I've ever ridden before. Let's do this. And then, and then we we're like, okay, let's also attempt the Mount Lemon KOM sometime next week. And, and I was like, oh, I, but then the other part of the story is I actually, so Lionel, to his credit, he did it on his own. I mean, he had a film crew with him and stuff. So it's not like he's having to find the motivation on his own. And I did it. I paced it with one other guy you could say to find my motivation, I guess. Um, and so the other guy wanted to do it on two, we just like two weeks ago before that, we said, Oh, let's do it on Tuesday. So I kind of, when I was doing that 250, I knew I was going to have to do about 11 on Tuesday, but I was like, again, because to me, it's not, it, it's more about getting the overall training stimulus and what I was trying to accomplish and still following the plan than like peaking and tapering for this, this event. And so, uh, yeah, again, like partway halfway through that, at 20 minutes, well, 35 minutes up, I'm like, whoa, I've just done like 10 watts higher than my peak ever 30 minute power. I'm like, and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to, I'm going to completely explode. And then, 
then the guy was like, whoa, you're falling off. Keep going. And I was like, oh, that's like totally mental. And then I kind of kept going. And so it was really, really cool mentally doing that approach. And then, um, yeah, and then to be honest, well, then the next day I actually ran 20 miles after that. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, I was just like wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just been like having these daydreams of the pain on Mount Lemon and how it's just made me really tired. So I'm trying to forget it. I have to forget the pain if I'm going to do it again, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems like there's, so there is something to that because it seems that's not the first time. I, I think leading into what worlds you were doing, some hard intervals that week leading into 70.3 worlds. Yeah. Some run intervals. How do you, how do you feel? Because I heard one of your other podcasts, you were talking about if you were self-coach, you would be going hard, 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 and hard, and this feels good hard. And now with Ryan, you've got sort of that guide, but you're still going hard um, and you're stacking efforts, but then you're coming down to absorb that intensity. So this seems like one of those experiences, like you, you gain some extreme fitness and confidence, I would say, from this 10 hour, yeah. 11, 15 ride, and then you were able to come back and, and nail something. And I know this isn't for everyone. I know you're a professional athlete and, and logging those efforts are are more mm, in line with a professional athlete than an age grouper. But have you seen, have you seen and experienced more up level in your ability to run faster, swim faster, bike faster with these big drops in fitness and then coming way down with um, some rest and adaptation time? Yes. Um, the short answer is yes. And, and so what I'd say, and the biggest question to me is sort of the time the time lag or the time variance there is there. And so in the past, I think I've always thought of it as being much more acute or much shorter than I think it actually is, at least for me. So I think like, okay, if I ride 250 miles and then I do Mount Lemon on Tuesday, that then let's say I have a 70.3 in 10 days. So the fall, not that Saturday, but the following Saturday, I think like, oh, that would set me up perfectly then. That's what I used to think. And now I don't think, at least for me, that that's actually right at all. It's probably that I'm still going to be feeling more on the downslope there in 10 days. It's actually more like in six weeks for me is when I'll then all, all of a sudden be feeling great. And so the other thing I've kind of noticed about my physiology is like, it actually works well for me to do like that 250 and then Mount Lemon. So I tend to like, I get up on a plateau and my energy's quite high. It can sometimes be like two weeks and almost every single day for those two weeks, like I might go two days hard, one day off for that entire two weeks and really feel great for two weeks. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, let's get prepared. Like I'll still train and it's not like I feel terrible, but like I don't feel great then maybe for two weeks. And then as I recover and absorb that and the training load's lower, then as I come up and I'll feel even better than the previous one and I can then do it for two weeks at a, at a higher level. And so for me, it's kind of figuring out how do I put those at the right times to then because also for a race, we don't have to, we don't ride the Tour de France. We don't have to be high for two weeks, which would probably be good for me. We just have to be really, really, really high for one day. And we can be feel terrible the day before and we can feel terrible the day after. And that's totally fine. Yeah, that timing is a recipe that I think is, it's trial and error. Yep. And then it's always, I think it's always unique, right? Because we're always, we're always changing, you know, stresses in our life and just different situations in our life. Like we're always changing. So it's like, we kind of get that recipe that says, okay, it works, but also staying flexible with that recipe over time. Exactly. Because it, it will change. It will change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes it's like, you think it's perfect and it's not. 
at all. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and that's that's what happened to me at Lake Placid. It was kind of the classic, like do like a four week build, six weeks. Well, yeah, six weeks to two weeks out, and then kind of take a two week taper. You know, build it up a little bit the day before so that you're feeling good. And I felt terrible on race day. It was like, but it was like the classic taper that that anyone would kind of write and that says like this works. And it just did not, at least in that particular instance, it did not work at all. Yeah. And that's a relentless course to not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. not be firing. <laughs> yeah, to not feel good. <laughs> to have to go back out on that second run <laughs> on the, down yeah. the hill. Well, yeah. I didn't. I that's what that's what I said. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Tapping out. This is not my day. Uh, who have who do you look to? Like, who are your mentors in the sport now? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'd say um. And this is maybe always kind of been my approach just in general in life is I, I don't generally look at like one or two people, but I kind of look at like, let's say like 10 people and I say like, whoa, I really like that about them. And I, and I kind of try and pick and choose and say, oh, I want to like learn and take that aspect from them and that aspect. And it's not that I don't admire that everything they're doing as a person, but it's just I've, another good story is like last year, Ben Hoffman's kind of really taken me into it under his wing and he's taught me a lot. And, and so I definitely look up to him. And a year and a half ago, I trained with him for two weeks out here in Tucson. And then I was like, whoa, he's had all this big success. I look up at him. I'm going to try and live my life like him. And I tried that for a little while that I was like, whoa, that's Ben Hoffman's life, not my life. So it's like, I don't look at Jan Frodeno. I don't look at anyone and say like, I want to replicate and live my life like how they do. I might say like, I love how Mel Hoschild in Australia, I love how she still keeps things pretty simple and she goes out with long rides and she trains with friends. And I might say like, oh, I kind of want that. Or, oh, I love how Tyler Butterfield, you see him in the pool and he's like, he'll offer you any advice. And he's always bringing up the young guys. And it's like, and he goes and he races a marathon. So I might say like, oh, let me kind of try and keep that. So there's sort of all these people I sort of, totally admire 100% and respect everything they do. But like, I especially like one or two traits from, from maybe each of those people. And there's a there's definitely a pot of people down in Tucson right now. Have you been able to physically distance yourself from anyone in a way where you can still train together? Oh, uh, it's been pretty. <laughs> it, yeah, it's been not so much recently. I haven't really seen anyone really that much in the last like 10 days ago, I was still doing some rides with Ben. And, but to be honest, things have gotten so kind of, uh, for the better things are that it's really just been all solo. Yeah. We're, we're all kind of sequestering a little bit more now. How have you been creative with the swim obstacle? Oh, well, <laughs> I, it's, since we're on a podcast, I never don't tell the truth on a podcast, but um, I actually have a pool I'm swimming at, a 25-yard pool I'm swimming at. So so I haven't had to get creative at all. I've been swimming 30, 35K a week. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Amazing. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Keep that, that is going. an undisclosed location. <laughs> yeah. People people have to listen to 50, 55 minutes of the podcast to figure that out. So we'll see how many of them hang through. <laughs> Awesome. And I've heard you talk about, you've, you've mentioned it in this podcast too, about like being your best self. What does that look like for you? What does it look like to be your best self? How does it feel? Yeah. Well, I think when you're your best self, like you're, you're really happy. So I'd say it, it kind of implements itself, at least for me and being happy and being carefree and, and spending time with the people I love and being able to have a big heart with, with my family and my girlfriend and friends and, 
even a stranger on the street that whatever might insult you. It's kind of like, oh, I don't have anything wrong with you. So that's fine. So I'd say like, that's how, that's how I know I'm living my best life. And I kind of go at it. Like just, I, I think of it as more of like an everyday, if we want to be dramatic again, an everyday battle. It's like every day you wake up and you got to, you know, cause sometimes you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you don't feel great, but you make the best of it. And if you do that every day, then you might add months up and, and yeah, you might have a bad day, but don't let that take down your whole month, you know? I like how you said that, like it implements itself, like your best self will implement itself when you're happy. And another way I would say that is like, it takes no effort to be your best self. Yeah, exactly. Because it just, it will show up if you're doing what you love and following your heart and yeah, keeping open hearted. Like, I mean, we're looking at this coronavirus. It's all respiratory. It's pneumonia. Like this is all about our heart. We've got to keep that heart open and we've got to love the people that are nasty too, because they're, yep. they're suffering, right? Yeah, exactly. They're suffering. Do you do any kind of visualization techniques with your, with your races? Anything that you'd be willing to share that you do, like with the mindset prior to, or even during yeah, the training? Definitely. So I'd say like a lot of it occurs during training. So especially like a 250 mile ride. And going back to earlier when you said like, oh, it's great to let your mind wander, which it is. And it's also great to let your mind be like focused and, and use it as a tool. And, and so I like to do both. Like let's, if we look at that 250 mile ride, there was probably like a five hour duration there where like. I just let my mind wander and it was totally amazing. Five hours went by as if it was 20 minutes, you know, and, and, and it's almost like I'm dream in this dream state, which is why I think I can ride so long because it's like, I'm just, I'm not overly conscious about it. But then it's also like, I, I might picture, you know, basically every different situation I can in a race, like, Oh, I'm winning the race. I'm feeling good. I'm winning the race. I'm feeling bad. I'm in last place in the race. And, it's important to me to finish and kind of thinking like, how do I deal with that situation? I get a flat, I get a, I get a drafting penalty. Like what's the mind doing and how do you stay positive in that way? Like next time, cause I probably will get a drafting penalty at some time in my career next time. Hopefully if I get a draft, hopefully I don't, but if I do, it's hopefully not like, Oh, bike my head off. Let's ride 355 on this Ironman course now and then run six hours. It's like, no, let's just, carry on as planned and do the best we can. And then probably a whole nother topic of conversation from my mom. And she started this when I was very young and it's called brain spotting. And so it involves a special type of music and it's, and this is a lot of what she practices. And, and you basically, the eyes find a certain, like it connects with the brain, a certain region of the brain, and it basically gets you extra focus. So sometimes I'll do like train sessions like that, where it's like, okay, find that brain spot then channel that energy that you like. And then actually then like, you can even find it with my vision just in a race. Like say when I'm running for me, it's usually up in the upper left and say, if I'm like really hurting and say, I did this brain spotting session where it's like, Oh, when you're really hurting in a race, a big one for me is like open your heart and run with your heart and run for love and run for passion and all that stuff. And then if I find that, like all of a sudden I can connect back to that and sort of help dissipate while the pain still stays just as bad, but it's kind of finding maybe more reason to fight through the pain. Yeah, that's amazing. It's called brain spotting. Yeah, totally. Yep. Yeah, we'll have to check that out. Yeah, I like that. For that, sure. That visual cue. You know, definitely, definitely exactly. the pain isn't going to go away. It's it's sort of like your it's just your relationship to what's happening right there in that moment. You know, is it is it as yeah. really painful as you think it is, or is you are you removing your focus to shifting it to another another exactly. place? I think that's really helpful, especially for our, our listeners who they get to that point in a race where they just don't know how to get past. Yep 
the sensation they're feeling. And I, I think we should look, look a little bit deeper into it and share yeah. it. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Absolutely. So yeah. you are still, you, you have, dude, you have like decades ahead of <laughs> yeah. you in this sport. I mean, really like I'm seeing decades ahead. And what do you think the key is for longevity for you? Well, I guess the theme of the podcast, keeping it fun, right? Really keeping it fun, making it adventure, making it less about the results than the process. For me, that's, I, I kind of just think if I focus on that, then hopefully I'll be 45 years old. I'll be the grandpa of the sport and I'll be going like, I still love this. And yeah, that'd be the best way to, to do it. Yeah, you'll be co coaching some young lad, telling him to go out yeah. and ride a thousand miles. Yeah, go out yeah, and ride right. a thousand miles. Yeah, absolutely. We'll look into that. That's awesome, Sam. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. I'm glad, you know, we had planned to get together in person when we were in Boulder, but, you know, as we get creative during these times and, and I think connection is more important than ever. And we have all these amazing ways to get creative to connect. So thanks so much for showing up for us today so that we can share you with, uh, with our community. We appreciate it. Yeah, of course it was my pleasure.